0: Ronelle, she's going to teach this morning. Southend's onlineers, just a big welcome. Southend's in-person is, let's welcome them. Happy Mother's Day to you. It's great to have you. Do you know, and my wife is okay for me to say this, Ronelle turns 50 next week. How about that? Can you believe 50? Someone wise and funny said that uh, women age like fine wine, and men age like milk. And that's kind of what I'm experiencing here. Hey guys, we all married up. So I love, what did you say? I got that right, thank you. (laughs) Um, I love watching my wife at work when she teaches. Sometimes she'll teach here, sometimes she'll teach at other churches and I just love the diligence. She prepares longer than me, let's just say. I'm pretty diligent, but she pours over the word, spends hours and hours and hours at the dining room table and in coffee shops, et cetera. And um, she is someone who is not an ambitious preacher. She's a reluctant preacher, but every time she does, the Lord speaks. And I love the fact that she doesn't feel pressure to be all intense and loud and sweaty like me. Um, She is her own person. She's much more quiet and calm. But as we were praying this morning for this uh, message and for you, I was just reminded of my daughter's soccer coach, Mike Silzer. And he's a remarkable soccer coach. I took him out this week to thank him for coaching my daughter for two years and they've got through to CIFs, and I was just thanking him, and I said, Mike, the amazing thing is you never raise your voice. Why is that? Like, he's, he's so understated, so quiet on the sidelines, but yet people, the girls are an incredible team, and they just hear, they listen. He said, you know, Alan, I find that there's enough collective nervous energy on that field, and I want to be a calm, non-anxious presence in their life. Amazing, eh? Hey? And I believe that that's something of what God is going to do this morning as Renell preaches. There's a lot of nervous energy in our lives at this time, but God wants to be a calm, non-anxious presence in our life to speak. And so let's open wide our hearts and be attentive to his servant as she preaches the word.
1: Thank you. Good morning Southlands. I was a calm and anxious presence until he asked me to preach. (laughs) Um, So this service was one where I could either carry on with the series we're in or I could choose my own and I decided to choose my own text and I landed on Psalm 139, um, partly because if you're a mom, you'll know why, this psalm is an enormous comfort to moms. Um, Throughout my life as a mom, this psalm has just been a recurring theme. It's been one I've returned to countless times. Um, When we were struggling to conceive our first child, this psalm was the one that gave me courage, that gave me hope. Um, When I felt tempted to be a helicopter mom, try to be everywhere my kids are, it's been a comfort to know that he is, God is everywhere, he is there. When I've wondered what's been going on in the dark, the things I don't know about my kids, it's been a comfort to know that God knows it all. Um, and then you can ask my kids, they have rolled their eyes as I have told them that they are fearfully and wonderfully made. <laughs> you have to say that, mom. They always say it to me, but it's no less true because I'm saying it. And so let's read Psalm 139 together and you'll see what I mean. I'm putting my glasses on because I'm 50 years old next week. <laughs> <laughs> o Lord, you have searched me and you know have known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Search me, O God, and know my heart, try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. How amazing is that psalm? I'm gonna put this out of the way. The cry of this psalm, as you read through it, is you see me, you know me. You can't read that psalm without walking away with that takeaway. And it's, it's echoed in our culture today. Um, you hear it spoken about, seeing and knowing people. I've been at a few parties lately where um, people have honored the person um, who the party's for. And one refrain I hear over and over, both at honorings and just in conversation, is this colloquialism, I feel so seen by you. That's considered a compliment in our day. I feel so known. It's important to us, right? We want to feel known. We want to feel, it's important to us to feel seen. And this psalm addresses that very thing. The, the cry of the psalm is you are seen and you are known. But it's tricky because we wanna be known, but we don't want people to know everything about us, right? We wanna be known, but not completely known. There's some things we'd like to keep to ourselves. Just think of when you're in the airport and your luggage comes out on the carousel and yours is the bag where the zipper has broken and your underwear is lying on the carousel going round in front of everybody. In that moment, you feel this. I want to be known, but not that much. I don't want you to know that about me. You think about why do we get so incensed when someone reads our diary? It's because we don't want them to know everything. Um, and David identifies this very problem in this psalm and he plunges into the depths of just how much God knows about us. And so first of all, he he faces us with this reality that God knows us completely, utterly, intimately. He knows everything about us. Oh, we can't deceive him. As much as we try and as much as we try to put up our facade and present him with a version of ourselves. He sees us as we are. We can't deceive him. He's the God who sees everything. He sees what's in plain sight, and he sees what we hide. He sees our actions and our inaction. He sees our longings and our fears, our shame and our joys. He sees in the dark and he sees in the blinding light. He sees our future and he sees our past. He knows literally everything. And so that's why the psalmist starts off with this exclamation, oh Lord, you've searched me and you know me. He's got this vulnerability where he's realizing, gosh, you have examined me. And that word search is actually, it's parallel to mining or to investigating for a legal case. So there's this digging deep into the details of our lives to explore and examine with pain and care. And he's basically saying, God, that's the way you've searched me. Um, So he knows us completely. You'll know this if you've ever received any kind of prophetic word from anybody in this community. You always walk away from those moments when somebody comes to you with a prophetic word and you have that sense of they've read my mail, Every time I walk away, my overwhelming sense is, you know me, God, you know me. And so it just is the major theme here for us to understand that we cannot hide. It says, you know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar, you search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. This is hard for us to really get because we, we're a bit like children. Moms, if you think of the first time your child ever played hide and seek, we're very much like that child. When you have a little toddler and it's the first time and you say, go hide, what's the first place they hide when they're brand new to the game? It's this. They close their eyes because they believe that if they can't see you, you can't see them. And that's what we do with God. We just think, well, he can't see, but he can. We're as, we're as transparent as we are when we're in that main room there, when we're back inside, and the moms in the mom's room will know this. There's a one-way glass there. And they're on the other side of it looking at the service and many of us will walk past there and check our outfits or clean our teeth in the window (laughs) and it is as transparent as ever but we think they can't see us. And it's like that with God. We assume that because we can't see him, he can't see us but he sees everything. We feel concealed by glass. But that's how transparent everything is to him. He's so observant. He not only observes our acts, but he even observes our thoughts. It's just plain to him, completely plain to him. He notices when I'm sitting quietly, maybe having my coffee in the morning, he notices me. He notices me when I get up and resolutely set out on my day to go conquer the world. (laughs) He's watching me, he's noticing me. My mundane and casual acts, my urgent and important acts, he notices them all. He's not just observant, he's perceptive. So the original Hebrew here talks about not observing, but also sifting or discerning. So it's almost like a, it's actually the winnowing, where they used to separate wheat and chaff. And it's like he's, he's sifting and perceiving. He's seeing our thoughts. Spurgeon says, he sees the motion of my mind as well as those of my body. So he perceives my thoughts, which is a crazy thing because we, in our culture, we, if you watch any sort of interactions on social media platforms, they, a lot of us assume that we know what people are thinking, right? You said this, so I know what you're thinking. But we don't actually. With God, he actually does know what we're thinking. He perceives the nature of our thoughts, he perceives where they spring from, where they drift, and yet he never misjudges or misinterprets us. He never has to ask the question, what does she mean by that? (laughs) He doesn't have to ask that, he knows exactly what we mean. And this is an incredible comfort. I think of this last year, and we've all done things, that we're ashamed of in this last year, year and a half. COVID has not brought out the best in us. Uh, We've done things we're not proud of, we've thought things we're not proud of, we've done things in secret, made decisions in private. And the comfort is that he he knows already. (laughs) He saw it, he was with us. He saw what we were thinking, he saw what our motivations were and we don't have to fear disappointing him because he was there when we did it. He knows. So herein lies the comfort, right? We don't have to fear being found out by him. He knows what I do, what I think. He knows what I plan to say. He knows what I plan for the day. He knows it all together. I can't impress him and I can't disappoint him. He can't misunderstand me and nor can he be deceived by me as much as I try. He knows everything. And so at this point, we've got two options. Either we can take comfort like the psalmist is trying to get us to do, or we can do what most of us wanna do, and that's run. Like, I've gotta get out of here. You know when you've been found out, like, I've gotta get out of here. Let me just run. I've been found out, caught in the act, and like our parents in in the garden, we decide to run and hide. Um, And knowing this, David preempts it and goes straight into the next part of the psalm where he actually tells us, you can't run. You can't hide. Where are you going to run? Where are you gonna hide from the God who's everywhere? God is with us constantly. And so we can't escape him. We just can't escape him. This is the God who is always there. The psalm speaks the question, where on earth are you going to run? He's everywhere. Or as Augustine says, where in the world can anyone flee from that spirit who fills the world? Or Spurgeon, he surrounds me even as the air continually surrounds all creatures that live. It's helpful to think about him as air. Try and get away from the air. Try and run. Try and hide from air. It's ludicrous. It's as ludicrous as trying to get away from your own skin. That's how ludicrous it is to try and get away from God. He is the quintessential helicopter mom. (laughs) With good motive. And so he goes on to talk about how God hems him in, behind and before. He lays his hand upon me. This amazing picture of this God that has got you encircled, some some of the translations say. And it's helpful with this part to think less like being encircled by bullies on a playground um, or by someone who's trying to rob you in an alley. It's not God encircling you in that threatening, um, ominous way. Think of it more like parents teaching their kids to take hikes or ride bicycles. Whenever you start off as a parent and you've got young kids and you want to teach them how to ride a bicycle on the road, or else to go on a hike, you'll see that parents always have one parent in the front, all the kids in between, and then one parent at the back, right? They're hemmed in before and behind. There's a parent in the front to lead and figure out the way and look out for any dangers, and there's a parent behind to make sure that there's no vulnerabilities. And so. It's helpful to think of it more in terms of parents. (laughs) Bicycles on the road, you'll see parents when they're riding around the neighbourhoods here. There's one parent on the bike in front and one behind to make sure that they can, can help the kids along. And this is the way that God protects us. He hems us in like parents, in front and behind. The King James Version uses the word beset. It says, thou hast beset me behind and before, and I don't, beset's not really a word we use much anymore except in the term besetting sin. I'm sure you've heard it when people talk about I have a besetting sin, and really we understand what that means, right? It's a, a sin that won't leave us, a sin that keeps coming back, a sin that is powerful. We feel weak against the sin. It just keeps tripping us up. It's a besetting sin. And over here, the the comfort here is that we see the besetting God in a standoff against the besetting sin. So you picture yourself in this standoff while you're encircled by God. He's hemmed you in behind and before as you face this opposition. And the spinoff is, as Spurgeon says, this makes it dreadful work to sin. So it actually makes it hard for us to sin when we understand that he has hemmed us in. And when we still wanna run, we generally choose two things. We generally choose either to run into the distance, so get as far as we can out of here, or into the darkness. And so in the Psalm, you can see, he says, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee heaven, as high up as I can go, Sheol, as low down as I can go, the uttermost parts. Um, He's basically saying how far will you have to run to get away from Him? And he's basically saying you can't, God is always there. Wherever you go, God is not just there, but it says He's leading you there. In that place, He is leading you, either to arrest you in your disobedience, or to sustain you in your obedience. He's still leading you wherever you are. Even in the places we try hard where we think are God-forsaken places or places that seem inappropriate for God to be, he basically is saying, no, he's still there and he's still leading you, the places where you think God doesn't belong. He says... Well, maybe you wanna run into the darkness. So surely the darkness will cover me. We do that, right? We, we think that when it's dark, our acts are hidden. We always try to do bad things in the dark. Whether we wanna go far or we wanna go dark, he's there. Spurgeon says, men are so foolish as to prefer the night and darkness for their evil deeds But so impossible is it for anything to be hidden from the Lord that they might as well transgress in broad daylight. As far as God is concerned, we always dwell in the light, for even the night itself glows with a revealing force. And so David's pressing home this point that God is everywhere and seeing everything. And then he goes on to take us even further into the dark, the darkest place you could imagine, is the womb, right? He takes us into the womb, just this place of the unknown. And he says, even there, God was at work. God made us wonderfully, is his next exclamation. And Eugene Peterson says, in the presence of birth, we don't calculate, we marvel. This is the God who creates. We can't ignore him. The God who forms things out of nothing. The God who forms us both in the womb and outside of the womb. He's the God who makes us wonderfully. For you formed me in my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. It's the marvel of birth. It's the God who forms us in the womb. And there's really this call to consider your body and to consider it as a wonder. (laughs) Now this might be hard for you because some of you may like your bodies and some of you may not. And so I understand that this isn't always a simple thing to look at your body and go, what a wonder. (laughs) But the call here is to consider God's creation in your body because wherever you are there, your body goes. If you are in the darkest place and you're not in the Grand Canyon marveling at God's creation, you still have your body. And the call is to consider it. Consider how wonderfully it is made. You may have preferences. You may have things you like or don't like about it, but the fact is, it is intricately woven and it is wonderfully made. It's wonderfully made in the same sense that a baby is wonderfully made. You have to consider this. And for me, it helps with my body to think in terms of how it functions Consider how a wound heals. I've often just been amazed after surgeries, or even just you know falling and watching a wound heal. It's an incredible thing our bodies, how they are made to just regenerate. <laughs> to, it's just an incredible thing. If I remember that when I f- met my first niece, my oldest sister had her first baby. When I was in my early 20s, and I remember going to meet Lauren in the hospital, this little girl. And it was the first time I saw a newborn that I was related to. And I remember the marvel of looking at the fingernail on her little finger and thinking, how on earth did God make something so small and so incredible? And so consider your body. It's a it's an invitation to worship, an invitation to praise. It's cause for praise. Marvel at its delicacy, tremble at its frailty. It arouses admiration of the work and reverence for the worker, Spurgeon says. And so I encourage you to do that. Asher Frau, can you come here? <laughs> This is my oldest son, Asher for I love him. <laughs> oh dear, I'm going to cry. <laughs> Verse 16, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them. The days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. This is a CD for those of you who weren't born when they were around. <laughs> you actually used to pay for Yes, when you used to pay for music, a bit of a sore point in the Frau household. Um, This, and those of you who didn't know, your pastor is a musician and used to lead a worship band that used to travel around South Africa and did a few tours of the UK and recorded multiple albums, and this is one of them. This was recorded in 1998, and um, it's a, the band was called The God Sessions, but this album was called Wait. And you can probably see what's on the front. Moms will probably be able to see what this picture is. It is an ultrasound. And this ultrasound is what we knew of this in 1998. (laughs) This little blob in this blue CD cover was Asher Farah. And this is a lofty thought, because when we were seeing that, God saw this. God already saw this. Before, when we were struggling to conceive this, God saw this. All along, God saw this. He saw his unformed substance before we conceived him. And this is the loftiness of this thought. Thank you, my boy. There's a strangeness to these verses. It's, it's strange, and especially with the sweep of our 21st century thinking, our reasoning. One of the defining values of this time we live in is empathy, right? I love it because I've lived through decades where there was a famine of empathy, and it makes for a hostile world. And so I love the empathy that is in our culture and is a defining part of our culture. But when it comes to babies being formed in the womb, it can lead us astray. And so I'm wading in. And I've just noticed in some conversations with people that this psalm speaks directly into the role that empathy has to play um, in discussions around children in the womb. And I think if if empathy becomes supreme, we can just become untethered. Truth has a kindness to it, but it also will not bend. And nowhere in the Bible does it state more clearly than in this Psalm, the truth about life before birth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book, we're written every one of them, the days that were formed for me when as yet there were none of them. We can debate ad infinitum about when we think life begins, but when the one who's seen in the dark says that we have substance, before we have substance, he's written all our days, we have to listen. He saw us before we were formed. Imagine Shakespeare. Romeo and Juliet, he wrote the play. Those characters existed for him before they were even doing auditions and rehearsals. He knew their tragic end before they even existed. And so I honestly understand, and I I do empathize with the empathy that we feel for women with unwanted pregnancies or pregnancies that were conceived under traumatic conditions. And I I wanna encourage us to be empathetic in those decisions, but around abortion, I just wanna say that we can't afford to soften our convictions. I wanna implore you to grapple with this, not as a political or a generational issue, but as a biblical issue. Spurgeon says, God saw us when we could not be seen, and he wrote about us when there was nothing of us to write about. When as yet there were none of our members in existence All those members were before the eye of God in the sketchbook of his foreknowledge and predestination. And that's all I'll say about that. God forms us in the womb, but he also forms us outside the womb. Spurgeon says, if we're marvelously wrought before we are born, what shall we say of the Lord's dealing with us after we quit his secret workshop? And he directs our pathway through the pilgrimage of life. Cannot he who made us wondrously when we were not, still carry on his work of power till he has perfected us. I want to encourage you not to lose hope in the fact that he can actually perfect you. It is, you know, we always have this disclaimer, I'm not perfect. (laughs) Well, he's saying, well, I could change that. I can change that for you. I can perfect you. So David he has this strange little section, which as I read through the psalm, you probably were feeling a little uncomfortable when he has this hateful rant against the people who oppose God. He's like, I hate them. And you're just like, gosh, you know, it was such a lovely, gentle psalm. And then we have this little like rant in the middle and you go, what on earth is going on? But he, he basically is saying that he hates this offensive, this offense against God. And then he turns it in on himself and he says, is there any of that in me? Have I offended you in any way, God? And he offers again this search and he opens up his eye and says, search me. These people are on the offensive against you, but maybe I am too. Is there something in me that offends you? Search me, O God, know my heart, try me, and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. You've searched me, and now there's an invitation to it again, to try him again, it's the legal kind of, he's basically asking God to lawyer up. He's saying, God, lawyer up, do the investigation, and let me know if there's anything in me that offends you. The Christian Standard Bible says, see if there's any offensive way in me, and I think we often fail to ask that question. We're so sensitized, to offense, right, in our generation. Um, but we, I think sometimes we forget to ask and understand that God can be outraged as well, and God can be offended as well. And so it's a warning to us not to allow ideologies and philosophies, you know, your podcasts and peers, your social media feed, with all its political correctness and party politics, to search you more than God. Do you worry about offending God as much as you worry about offending these? Have you asked God, what did I say, to offend you? It's such a good thing to do because he knows it all anyway. <laughs> and it begs the question, of course, if we're saying, search me, have I offended you? It begs the question, will, will he, like our peers or our social media feed, shame us if we have offended him? And the answer is just uh, plain and simple, not on your life. I went to the dentist after the COVID break from dental cleanings. <laughs> I'm normally really good about my dental cleanings and I go every six months and get my, my teeth cleaned, but they canceled the appointments with COVID and with only essential stuff. And then, then I got embarrassed and thought, I don't really wanna go back now because it's been a year. So eventually, 18 months in, I was, I just got to do this. So I went last week to go get my teeth cleaned. And I was so embarrassed because I hadn't had them cleaned for 18 months. So I walk in and I'm sitting in the chair, and we've got this amazing um, dental hygienist in our with our dentist and he's a really sweet guy. He was like, Renelle, I haven't seen you for 18 months. I cleaned your teeth once and then you left. I never saw you again. Did I offend you, he asked me. And I was like, no, not at all. And then I said to him, I said, actually I'm just so ashamed. I feel really ashamed of my teeth right now. (laughs) And he was the sweetest guy, he just said to me, he just said, I'm not here to judge you. I'm here to clean your teeth. (laughs) And it made the process of him, you know, they have that wand with the camera on the end that they stick in your mouth and you see it coming up on the screen and you're just like, oh, I don't wanna see what's in the dark, I don't wanna see what's behind my last molar on the left side. You know, they've got that like light comes down and then this microscope on their forehead and you're lying there, you just feel so vulnerable and exposed. But somehow it wasn't as scary because I knew he wasn't gonna judge me. And that's the offer to us. We have got nowhere to hide, but we have this God who basically says, come, I'm not here to judge you, I've I've taken care of that part. Come and let me clean your teeth, let me transform you. And I left that dental office transformed. No tartar, no plaque, (laughs) I was transformed. And the same offer, comes to you today, you have this opportunity to be perfected and transformed. I think of people in this room who I've seen transformed. I recently with Asher, quite interesting, when he was a little kid, he was quite he was quite sad a lot of the time. He would always wake up crying from his naps, wake up in the morning crying. He was always I have felt like he was quite a sad kid, but the name Asher actually means happy or blessed. (laughs) So we're always like, this is kind of awkward. (laughs) (laughs) But I got a post on one of um, Alan's posts the other day. There was a message from someone who'd seen a family photo and commented on Asher and how much he'd grown. And she just basically said, I actually named my oldest son Asher after your Asher. And she said, because, he was just so happy all the time. It's gospel transformation. Adri, you are to me. If you wanna know a transformation story, get some time with Adri. Adri arrived here how many years ago, friend? Seven, six or seven years ago. And Adri was about to get saved. <laughs> and she was timid and afraid, but she cooperated with God. And now Adri is one of the most passionate disciples I know. She tells everything that moves about Jesus. (laughs) She is just the most bold representative of Christ. Christ has been formed in her in the last six or seven years. And the same hope is for you, and so I wanna ask you to lift your faith in the fact that actually God can transform you outside the womb. Look at what he did in the womb. How much more can he transform you now outside the womb? And so the first thing, Tim Keller gives these two things we need in order to be transformed. And the, one, the first one is the most important one and he says basically you have got to settle your identity in him. You have to settle your identity in him. So often we approach God with the this statement. I'm a good Christian, right? I'm doing well. I've got it together. We try and impress God. And he's saying you can't approach God because when you're not doing well, then you can't approach him. If you're not a good Christian, then what do you do? And he's saying the reason the way we approach God is we approach in him. Not I'm a good Christian. I'm in Christ. And so I wanna press that home, please. As you come to Jesus and say, search me and know me and lead me in the way everlasting, you have to do it in Him. Otherwise, Tim Keller says, until you know you are in Him, you won't have the emotional strength to admit how much sin is still in your life. Because if there's sin in your life, you're not a good Christian, right? But if you're in Him, the sin is not as scary. The second thing he says is you've got to basically kill the sin in your life, <laughs> there's no getting around it. And I wanna suggest that we can help each other with this as a community, we really can help each other to be killing sin in our lives. There's two hindrances, and it's really a call to be mothers and fathers. These people who were pulled up here earlier, they people who have taken on this task of helping Christ to be formed in people's lives. And that's a mothering and a fathering role, and you don't have to be a mother and a father to do it. But I think we have two things that we, two mistakes we make in this process of transformation. And I think the first one is that we tolerate sin in each other. I find people saying things with my weaknesses where they, I know people will say, it's, it's just Ronelle. You know, Ronelle's quiet, she's an introvert, leave her alone. It's just Ronelle, she doesn't have to do that. She's quiet. No, sometimes I'm just selfish and rude. It's sin. Sometimes it's not, but sometimes it's sin. And I need you to call it out on me. I need you to not let me off the hook. Sometimes in confrontation, I'm... I'm gracious, maybe, but sometimes just, I'm a plain coward. <laughs> I need you to call me out, and Sarah, now you need to talk to that person about that. That's why I have Ellen Frau in my life, <laughs> and you. <laughs> so the problem is, generally, we see sin as an untrained pet rather than a predator. How many of you binged on Tiger King during COVID? Yeah, come on, own it up, don't leave me alone here, Tiger King. We all watched it. And what's the, the, the real tragedy is there is this group of people trying to tame predators and one lady paid for her, I mean, she paid with it with her arm, lost her arm and then went back to work the next day. You just go, what are you doing? Are you crazy? And that's what we do so often. We forget that actually, as Genesis says, sin is dangerous. It's crouching at your door. Its desire is to have you. And so the most loving thing you can do for me is to help me see where sin is in me. It's not you being judgy. It's not you being unkind. It's actually you loving me when you don't let me off the hook when I'm allowing sin to just dwell in me. And so I wanna encourage us to do that with each other. That's one of the, the promises of transformation is that we actually help each other to overcome sin. And then the last thing we do is we refuse to imitate others. And that's how we hinder transformation. We wanna be so original, we don't wanna be imitating anyone, right? So we say things like, oh, that's just Ronelle, she's gracious and quiet, and so she's calm, that's just her. But when we do that, sometimes we just make an excuse not to imitate that in a person. So any quality that you see in these people around you that you see in Jesus Christ is on offer for you. Any quality that is a Christ-like quality that you see in any person around you is one you can imitate, and he will help you to become like that. We use it as an excuse not to imitate, an excuse not to be transformed, but 1 Corinthians 11, This says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. So where you see people who have imitated Christ, imitate them. It doesn't matter if it's not their natural. So just don't disqualify yourself from transformation by assuming that someone's just wired that way. Maybe they were transformed that way. Maybe God built that into them outside the womb. And so that's why Paul says, I'm in anguish until Christ is formed in you. That's the hope of transformation, is that Christ will be formed in us and that the longer we follow him, chances are that it'll be more and more difficult to distinguish you from Christ, that you'll look more and more like him as you walk with him longer. And so I wanna encourage you today to open up yourself and just understand that he knows it all already. He's not gonna be shocked. He's not gonna be disappointed. You can't deceive him. And so my encouragement is to open it up. Say, Lord, search me. And show me if there's any way I offend you, and when he shows you those ways, my encouragement is to ask him to help you so that Christ can be formed in you. Can we pray? Lord God, we marvel at you as we read the psalm. You are absolutely magnificent. the just the depths of your knowledge, what you're capable of, what you're capable of creating. Thank you that we are known, we're so known and we are seen. Thank you that you are with us everywhere, even in our darkness, you are with us and you're leading us. And so we wanna thank you that you hem us in. Thank you for hemming us in, our besetting God. Thank you for encircling us. And thank you for your commitment to form Christ in us. We yield to you this morning, Lord. We lay down every um, accolade that we try to bring to impress you and every sin we try to bring to disqualify us. We thank you that you don't. You You didn't choose to judge us. You chose to qualify us by your death and resurrection. And so we... We open up our hearts to you and we ask you, would you transform us? Would you transform us? In Jesus' name.